So I, I tell my prospects day one, um, this is hard. And sometimes I'm going to tell you that you're stupid. Sometimes you're going to tell me that I'm the worst vendor ever. Let's just get that out on the table now because I'm focused on making sure you can protect the digital identities of my friends, my family, and me. That's what my mission is. So if I can help you do that, I don't care if it's with a competitor's product, but let's know that that's a hard thing to do. And we don't necessarily have to be best friends about this whole thing, because my goal is making you successful. Happiness is a chocolate bar. When it's gone, you're going to want another one. Success is something that's going to help your business. So um, that is a mantra for me. We do not want happy customers experience. We want success experience. What is happening, everybody? Joining me on the dirt today is Kevin Coppins, a 25-year technology executive who swore he would never become a CEO until he met the founders of Spirion. More on that later. In today's discussion, we do a deep dive into moving from a founder-led company to a PE-backed operating machine. We talk about how a company can predict success, and most importantly, we dive into data privacy and why most individuals and companies are in danger unless they start shifting their behavior. So go spend 100 bucks on popcorn, clear your cash, delete your archived emails, sit back and listen up. You are in for a treat. This is The Dirt Podcast, and I am your host, Jim Barnish. To support us, please check out our sponsor, Orchid Black at orchid.black. And if you're enjoying the content, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And now, my friends, here is Kevin Coppins. Okay, Kevin, say hi to everyone. Hey, Jim, how are you? Kevin Coppins, President and CEO of Spirion, joining you today. And good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, Kevin, your uh, your story is a bit different than most of the folks that I have on the dirt since you did not found Spiran, but were brought in by the founders to help scale the company. Talk to us a little bit about your road to Spirion. The road to Spirion is it, it kind of sounds like the road to perdition. Maybe they're somewhat similar. So yeah, I've been with the company a little over three and a half years, and I really joined the company after meeting the founders. So the founders had. Uh, had leaned on private equity a couple times to help them scale the business. And they'd gotten to the point where they, they really wanted somebody that could take their vision um, and turn it into what they believed it was possible of becoming. So 15 years ago, they set out to build the most accurate discovery solution on the planet. And by that, I mean, they believed that the digital version of Jim was almost as valuable as the physical version of Jim, and you had to protect it accordingly. Um, that was their passion. That's the why behind the company. For those uh, that follow Simon Sinek, that was the why. And, and I, I'll be honest, I felt honored to carry that torch. Um, they'd taken it to a certain level and they knew to get it to what the world they believed needed. Um, they had to go ahead and put it in some other hands. So they're still on the board. I still talk to them. I was on the phone with them yesterday on a regular basis. Um, and, and I give them credit for knowing what they were really good at and what they could do. And knowing that in order to get the company to the next level, they needed to do something different. Now, you've mentioned to me before that you, uh, I would say, didn't have the biggest desire to be a CEO. Like that wasn't your aspiration, right? It was to go just lead a company. What what was it about Spirion that changed your mind? Jim, I, I think the way that I put it to you is when they asked me to be the CEO, I said, oh my God, no. Uh, no nobody <laughs> would ever want to do that job. I think that's exactly <laughs> what I said. I grew up in the sales and marketing side of tech. I'd done some operational roles for um, very large companies, Mobile Oil and uh, Bausch and Lomb, nowhere near Mobile Oil size, but good, stable companies that you would recognize. Um, and then I really wanted to be on the sales and marketing side, and I did that for a host of hardware and software and cybersecurity companies. 
And that's what I liked. I, I enjoy the interaction with clients, with partners, with prospects, and really taking what they're looking to accomplish and matching what my organization can bring and marrying the two. So when uh, I was approached originally about Spirion, it was to lead their sales organization. And uh, I was working for a, a mentor of mine, actually, at a cybersecurity company up in D.C. So I was good. And they said, well, what, what if it was the CEO job? And that's when I said, oh, my God, no. What convinced me was the state the company was in, meaning we were not a startup. It was not a fledgling. Um, it was a company poised for growth. It had uh, we continued to enjoy some of the uh, marquee customers that anybody would kill for, especially for a smaller company our size. And we don't just have small divisions. We have entire enterprises um, counting on us every day. So that was great. Um, the technology was was solid. We had to go through a full transformation of moving from on-prem to cloud and perpetual to SaaS and that stuff that all software companies are going through. Um, but I also felt that I had the backs of the, I had the support of the founders, but I also had support of the private equity company. So um, for those of your listeners looking at PE, finding the right match of the right PE firm at the right time, um, Spirion is backed by the Riverside Company out of Cleveland, um, diverse set of holdings, but was a really good fit in terms of helping me grow into the CEO role. So I felt well supported by them. And as I said a few seconds ago, the why is what really captured me is in being able to take um, something as precious as a, a, to take something from a concept to a company is really hard. And that's what founders do. They have an idea. And that's like the hardest part. That's the, the struggle um, of moving it from there to there. And they'd already gone through that, taking it from that stage and into, uh, into predictable success. But with that strong why is really what encouraged me to say, yeah, yeah, I guess I'll go ahead and try the CEO thing. Yeah. And how has that dynamic between you as CEO and the founders of the company as former CEO and former executives, how has that how has that shifted over time and how have you been able to leverage them in the growth of the company? Um, really good question. So again, you got to have the right founders. Um, Todd and, and David, this wasn't one of those things where they were holding on for dear life, the white knuckle ride of this is my baby. I can't let go of it. They did step away from the business and they really said anything you need, Kevin, um, you've got. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to preserve that. There's, there's a mystique around the founders and I wanted to keep that. So one of the first things I did when I joined, which was just before the plague hit, um, is I pulled everybody together and I actually interviewed the two of them on stage for like 90 minutes. And I had them walk through the history and walk through their passion and walk through what they had, recorded the entire thing. And I've continued to bring them into company all hands meetings and calls, the occasional email to keep that mystique of the founders, the jobs and Wozniak kind of thing alive to keep the company rooted in our why and keep the company rooted in our core values. So I have not tried to supplant the founders. That's not my role. My role is to help take their vision and make it be all it can be. But I want to keep that flame of the founders energy um, alive. So I've really purposely kept the mythology around them and they've been great about that. Sounds like a major, major focus on purpose, major focus on respect, something that you don't always see when a new CEO takes over. So that's that's admirable. The uh, when you mentioned the private equity group Riverside that you guys um, that that was brought in and was that prior to your engagement or were they already did, had they already put some money into the business prior to they, you they'd already they, yeah they'd already acquired the company so history was founders um, took it bootstrapped till 2014 they then sold it to IGI which was their first go round they were still trying to figure it out they knew they needed to take external money in um, in order to grow it and they didn't they didn't spend the time finding the right match for the company 
Um, IGI then resold it to Riverside in 2018. Um, and I will say Todd and David, that was their second exit because they were brought back in by IGI to, to help put it back on the right tracks. So they spent a lot more time um, really checking out the match between PE and the culture and where they wanted the company to go. And I think sometimes people just, uh, if you've got something hot, there's a lot of PE firms that are interested. They'll go ahead and sell to the highest bidder versus sell to the one that's got the greatest propensity to drive the company where you want it to go. And I okay. think they spent their due diligence with Riverside. Got so it. I was brought in about a year after that. So was there any transition while you were there on, you know, away from more of that entrepreneurial mindset into more of that executive operator PE, you know, financial engineering mindset? Did, did you see any trends or were some of, was some of that already um, already complete? So a, lot, a lot of that plumbing was in place because they had about a year under their belt. So they'd started the, let's put in Salesforce and let's do this. And a lot of the stuff that PE firms do. Right after I joined, I was given an opportunity. And this is, again, um, credit to Riverside. I, I think I'd been here a week. And they said, so where should we take this company? I'm like, can I figure out how to spell Spirion first and make sure I still know how to get to the office? Can we start there? They said, sure. We, you, you'll have that done in two weeks. So they had me compile a list of all the stuff that we thought they could do to the company, which I thought was a pretty interesting exercise. It gave me a chance to meet the broader team because I, I didn't have the best ideas. Lord knows that. And right, right at the same time that I was joining, there was this, uh, for those listeners that might or might not know cybersecurity, there's this thing called NIST, National Institute of Standards and Testing, I believe is what it stands for. Um, and there's the NIST cybersecurity framework. And that's what every company on the planet follows. They had just come out with the data privacy management framework and they showed these overlapping circles and this company, Spirion, fit right in the middle of the two. So I took all the ideas, we took that and we meshed that into, if we were to do anything, we'd do this. And literally within a couple of weeks after that, we got another round of a significant investment of funding saying, go build that company. So it took us somewhat off the original thesis um, that Riverside and their shareholders were getting into with Spirion and it exponentially grew it because of data privacy and data security and breaches and regulations. There was just a lot of forces coming together at the same time that allowed Spirion to really um, not pivot into something new, but really embrace the seat that we were already in. So that accelerated our innovation, accelerated our investments in technology, accelerated investments in technology processes, and then COVID hit. So um, you've got a lot of moving parts. So. Uh, I refer to that. You and I also um, chatted um, about this book that I read called Predictable Success. And it wasn't about the book. It's actually an image that I found. Um, I since then read the book and I got to spend some time with Les, the author of the book. But talking about the phases companies go through and you start off with that struggle. Right? I talked about Todd and David started. Then it gets to fun. Got some money. Got some employees. Got an office. Got some customers. That's the lifestyle business you can keep it at. But if you want to push all the way through to really having a scalable, predictable business, you got to go through this period of whitewater. And I just love that imagery. Um, and that's where we've been. Because um, with whitewater, if you've ever been rafting, you might be in a category one and then you're a category five and then you're just chilling out and you're in the sun. And the next thing you know, you can kind of see the steam around the corner and you're like, it's going to get a little rocky and you're upside down and you're in the boat, you're out of the boat. That's just part of the ride. And you have to go through that moment in order to get all the way to the end of the river. And if you recognize that, for some reason, it makes you go, okay, this is just normal um, and it's okay. And this is what happens when you're on a, a river rafting ride. And to transition a company from perpetual to subscription to SaaS, 
through COVID at a time when the market is just absolutely completely going crazy between privacy and security and regulations and everything going on, recognizing that it's okay to not be okay sometimes is, uh, is calming. So what were some of those, uh, white water rapids that, that you guys saw yourselves in as you were evolving into, you know, more of that high growth company? So you want to talk about this week or last week or the, or the previous couple of years? Cause we seem to have one pretty regularly. Um, <laughs> Take your pick. Well, COVID would be a big one. Um, but I'm sure you've had a million people talking about COVID and how they dealt with COVID. And we'll go back and look at that period of time at some point and learn who did good and who didn't do good. We were all just trying to do the best that we could. From a company standpoint, um, the biggest thing was when the rest of the world woke up and realized that the space that we were in was the first step. So we had a whole bunch of startups entering our market at the same time. We also had a whole bunch of really big companies pivoting their messages directly into ours. So we had a market conversation that we had to have. Um, And the other big one is anytime you're transitioning a legacy product into a cloud product, um, it's always hard. So you've always got that moment of, what do you mean this widget doesn't talk to that widget? And we had a bunch of those moments and we still have some. So we're working through a whole early adopter program where we're bringing our customers through. And I had to change my delivery model. Um, We were originally selling $4,000 implementations for a $40,000 product. I now have a quarter of a million dollar annual contract product, um, which needs a delivery team and a whole delivery process. So just those learnings along the way that weren't necessarily thought all the way through when we embrace the spot we belong to be in, and those happen fairly regularly. So we also dealing with the great resignation. One of the things that gets talked about all the time is what does that mean internally? We absolutely had that going on internally as people were picking off our employees, we're in high tech. So now you can work for a Silicon Valley company out of West Topeka and you were fine. So we had that moment going on, but also your customers are turning over. So we sell to the chief information security officer who I think's average tenure is 18 to 24 months accelerate that through the great resignation, we have a nine-month sales cycle. So I get mm-hmm. to the end of the sales cycle and, oh, the guy that you just sold to for the last nine months is now leaving. Oh, we just changed the CFO. Oh, we just got rid of the entire security team was just sucked up by a crypto firm. And that's what we had to deal with. So you had both sides of those things going on. Is that enough? Should, should I go around the corner for more white water or was that enough to get a flavor for the company? Yeah, one more corner. One more corner. <laughs> <laughs> The last quarter would be is we had a beautiful office in downtown St. Pete, super high tech, all the stuff you would get. And then you have COVID, nobody's coming in. And I got a half a million dollar lease. So how do you get, how do you move from that? And the cultural stuff, we were very much an office culture to go from that to a distributed culture and from that office to a different office. So it's just been a lot lot of change, a lot, a lot of change. So when, when you think about the data privacy space, which you guys operate in and the evolution that's specific to to that sector, what are some of the, what are some of the other things that you had to push through or sort through that? I mean, obviously 18 month, you know, turnover on, in the employee side during a nine month sales cycles, uh, <laughs> speaks for itself, but any other things like that, that, you know, very specific to, to, to the world that you operate in? Yeah. So th- this is specific to, to us, but I think, uh, I think some of your listeners will, will understand it as well. Is your product a need to have, or is it a nice to have? So when Todd and David started this thing, in their heart of hearts, they believed this was everybody had to have it to the point where we even had a consumer product. So you would buy it and put it on your laptop. That was their passion. But most of the world saw it as a nice to have. Yeah, we'll get to that at some point in time. I got a firewall in place. 
you know, I've got a bunch of security people. I've got endpoint protection. I've, I've got things covered. And they kept screaming, saying, yeah, but there's still breaches going on. And you're not, you have to understand if you have a hundred copy, copies of Jim's resume from five years ago laying around on your servers, that's just a disaster waiting to happen to Jim. So how do you make sure that you don't have that? So we were really much in a nice to have. How do you get into the space of need to have? And that's where the market really shifted. So the market really shifted to, um, oh my goodness gracious, we have these things called DSARs, data subject access request. And if you'd like a quiz, Jim, I can ask you what those are, but I won't. Um, but it's part of GDPR. So GDPR was the big European privacy law that said, look, any information you've ever gathered on me is mine. It's not yours. So therefore, you got to have permission to use it. And if I don't want you to have it anymore, you got to delete. It's the right to be forgotten. Any place it might be found. Well, just think about that logistically. When you join an organization, the first thing you do is you fill out your I-9 form here in the U.S. And you have to have a copy of your passport or a copy of your driver's license and all kinds of super sensitive stuff. Where does that go? Is, is that locked in an encrypted server or does it get emailed to the HR clerk who then sends it off to the hiring manager who then has it back up to their Google Cloud Drive, who sends it to their personal email? It just it, it replicates like crazy. How are you going to find all that stuff when I say, look, you got my data, I want it back. So that was one big pushing moment for the world to say this might be a need to have and not a nice to have. Mm-hmm. Then the U.S. started following suit, California passing um, the CPRA now is what it's called. Uh, and then you've got all the rest of the states following suit. There's no federal path. Then um, the federal government signs uh, zero trust into law to say, well, not to law, but a presidential announcement. And it just came out with a secondary one last week that reinforced zero trust. And the heart of zero trust is understand what you're trying to protect. What are you trying to protect? Do people say giant breach at uh, Acme Inc. They got the lunch menus and the staff agendas from last week. No. They say they they got personal information and they say, what they get? They got passwords and they got social security numbers. That's the stuff that you got to find and make sure it's protected. So a lot of forces taking us from nice to have to need to have. And if you're living in that nice to have, marketing at the nice to have is hard. Need to have mm-hmm. is a much better place to be in. And that's really helped us turn over the last couple of years into higher growth. So when you're looking at the competition and the, the general landscape, what do, you, what do you see as why Spirion has been able to stay ahead of the competition in the data privacy space? Um, knowing what we're good at and knowing what we're not good at. So um, understanding what really makes your company unique is critical. And it, it can't be a bumper sticker. Um, good example is, you know what makes us unique is we have great service. <laughs> Every company on the planet says they have great service. You don't see a lot of company marketing. Some, please come come to my organization. We have crappy service and we hate our customers. Right. Right? So that you're never going to see that. So what's going to make you it truly unique that you can hang your hat on that people can throw darts at and it's going to hold water? Um, for us, it's accuracy. There's not a single tool on the planet Earth that is more accurate at finding strings like social security numbers or credit card numbers than Spirion. We even had a third-party benchmark. Um, the way that... It was architected from the get-go, was designed for accuracy because the premise was if you get the first step wrong, everything else after that is going to be wrong. So if I falsely identify or I incorrectly say that this server has nothing on it and it's loaded with bank account numbers, that's a major problem to the rest of your security posture. So anchoring on accuracy was one. Then the next part was making sure that you can automate it. How do I actually automate this whole process so I don't need a band of 30 cybersecurity people that you can't hire and can't find and can't retain anyway? 
So how do I build true automation, true visual automation that'll make sense to anybody? And then the last part for us was actionable. If you can find all the bad things, that's great. But if you can't do anything about it, it doesn't help. So mm -hmm. we've taken those three differentiators, which we've had elements of since the beginning, especially accuracy. And we've built every piece of our roadmap, every piece of our messaging, every piece of our partnerships and market around those three things. And we have not wavered from those. So I think people get distracted. They start chasing the competition. We had some competitors take on hundreds of millions of dollars of VC and they were pivoting all over the place and blanking in the world with their messages, which looked a lot like they were screenshotting our messages which can freak you out, lean into what you're good at and don't forget what you're good at and stay right there and you'll be okay. I think the people that start getting nervous and start trying to chase everything else that's out in the market um, becomes a challenge. So that's been good for us. Well, I'm sure there's some people listening in uh, wondering if they need to take a second look at their data privacy <laughs> and their their data security measures. So what what advice would you give to individuals or organizations who are looking to implement better data security measures? It's actually, um, I've, I've had it asked me a different way, so I'll, I'll answer it the different way first and then I'll go a little more specific. If you had if you had $100 to spend, what would you spend it on? I, I would make everybody in my organization go watch um, The Social Dilemma. If you haven't seen that movie, I'd make them go watch it and I'd buy popcorn. So I'd spend 100 bucks on some popcorn and an Uber Eats card because I think popcorn costs about 100 bucks now. So hundred dollars worth of popcorn and, and to, so that they can start understanding what's really going on with their data and start understanding the value of data. I think we skip a rock over it. I think people say, who cares if China's got my data? Who cares? It's already all out there anyway. But when you start really getting underneath some of the stories, um, one of the ones I share um, with my team, the true story, you can Google it and find the video and the video is even more disturbing, but it's a woman who had her driver's license stolen. This happened to be a physical driver's license, but it could be a digital one, could be a replicated one, what have you. And somebody took that driver's license and checked into a hospital. While in that hospital had a baby, the baby was born addicted to meth. So the government did what the government does. They showed up at the mom's house to said, we're taking um, all of your children away because obviously you're an unfit mother. And mm -hmm. she said, I didn't just have a baby. I wasn't in the hospital. They're like, yes, you were. She couldn't prove that that wasn't her. That's when you start saying, oh my goodness gracious, maybe I should keep a better idea on my data. But as you're sitting at a company, think how much data, you've got some of my data, just being on this podcast, right? So what, what are you doing with that data? What are you doing to give data to the local ice cream shop? You go to the ice cream shop, remember those little punch cards you used to get? When you got 10 punch cards, got your free ice cream. What do they have now? They got an app. Now they know what, what your favorite flavor is. All that stuff's being stored in the server. Probably has your credit card number next to it too. Probably says exactly what time and date you get ice cream every single week. Tells you when you're not home. There's all kinds of data that can be leveraged to do all kinds of evil things. And once you understand that, you'll better protect yourself. But my hope is whatever job you happen to have, you'll say it's my responsibility to make sure I'm emptying my trash. It's my responsibility to enjoy multi-factor authentication. And not get angry with it, but know it's I am being entrusted with the digital versions of people or the digital versions of very valuable things for my organization versus the way that we currently treat it. So it, it, to me, it's a cultural change first. That's a very long answer to your very short question. The second piece is if you only have $100, spend it on understanding what you have. 
Um, another breach. This one was just in the paper in January. Five guys and fries. Who likes five guys and fries? And the crowd went wild. You can do a poll on that below the bottom of your podcast. Great stuff. For your organizations out there just listening about, well, I have all my sensitive data or I don't have any customer data. What ended up happening to them is they had a server set up that was collecting all of their job applications. Hmm. Think about it. Set up a little form, a little woofoo form, collect the stuff, key your stuff in here. But nobody knew that was there. Um, HR had set it up. That got hacked. Now I got job applications, people that weren't even full-time employees, and think about the kind of stuff you have to put on those job applications. That's the simple kind of stuff that you need to make sure you understand what's going on. That's products like mine help with that, finding where the sensitive data is that you didn't expect it to be because it's like the stuff that gets into your couch cushions. And that's the stuff that comes back to her. Very rarely do you see... Um, they broke into the vault within the vault within the vault of everything we had protected. Mm. It's the S3 bucket that was in the cloud that had all the developer stuff for the last four years, and we forgot it was there. So spend the money to understand what you have so you can start your protection process. So let's assume somebody somebody uses their 100 bucks, right? And um, they also run an organization. Maybe it's a fairly large organization. What are some... Some beyond that hundred dollars, once they've become educated, um, what are some best practices they can use as a starting point to make sure their company data and their customers' data is secure? All right, so we, we, we've blown the hundred bucks on popcorn, and now we're moving on. Yeah, there's a ton of really good frameworks out there. I talked about NIST. Um, you've got Fair, which is another one. Um, but just just the basics. I, I think people um, shy away from the basics, like with anything else. If you're starting an exercise program or starting something else, what's the foundational elements, multi-factor authentication, foundational element. Does it solve all problems? No, there's workarounds for it, but it's a heck of a good start. Most of the, the hacks that you see these days are not, you know, these giant nation state 500 guys sitting in a bunker. It's fairly basic um, hacking on a password of ABC123 and mm-hmm. poof, I'm in and now I have access to everything. So understand that. Understand, like I said, your sensitive data footprint, know where it is, but know where it's coming in. Another one that I think people miss on all the time, especially small um, organizations, is they think that collecting as much information as early as possible is going to help them in their marketing efforts. Don't. <laughs> if you have a form to fill out, don't sit there and say, I want to have this, 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 and this, because if I have all that granular data, think about the account-based marketing I can do. Mm-hmm. Take the bare minimum. Data minimization up front will help a ton with figuring out where the data went afterwards. And as regulations are continuing to morph, what was sensitive three years ago might not be sensitive now, but what's sensitive today is a lot different than it was last year, as different than it was last month, as defined by the regulation. And they're not going to sit there and say it's based on every piece of data you're collecting from today forward. It's everything you've already got. So data minimization efforts up front making sure you know where that data is going. And then the last part from a data standpoint is know how long you have to keep it. Mm. Um, we, I can go through example after example where people, where we work with clients and they'll find stuff from 2014 because nobody ever purged it. And we are horrible in this country about trashing anything. We never oh. delete anything at all because we might need it someday. Um, I can tell stories about people that have every sent email for 15 years, all right there in their hard drive. Do you really need to have that? Cause that's really dangerous. Mm-hmm. So making sure that if it's got an expiration date on it, you delete it, you shred it, you get rid of it, you archive it and put it someplace where you don't have to use it. So understanding that whole data life cycle, shrinking down what you're collecting. Once you have collected it, know why you have it and what you're using it for. 
That's the privacy regulations. And then only keep it as long as is regulatory necessary and then get rid of it. So you mentioned the word regulation a lot. And uh, we don't talk about regulation much or risk much. We probably should way more often on, the, on this podcast. But what do you what do you see as the the future of regulation in the space? Well, first of all, regardless of organization size, I think sometimes the smaller you are, the less regulated you think you are, except for your specific industry. So if you're dealing with chemical stuff, you realize you got regulations there. If you're dealing with medical stuff, you understand those. But I think people miss this, this privacy regulatory thing impacts everybody. It's not just for the giant companies, because the dental office that's got 16 locations in uh, West Cleveland, um, has a ton of sensitive data and is absolutely can be taken out by a breach. So this affects everybody. So everybody needs to make sure they understand that this is not just for the bigger companies that are out there. From a regulatory standpoint, the easiest way to think about the regulation is they all, I don't care if it's the Utah privacy law or if it's PCI DSS or if it's any one of the big frameworks, they all start with understand what you have. So if you want to just forget about the regulatory landscape and say, I'm going to start there, that's going to help you with not only regulatory compliance, but also if you're going after your ISO um, certifications, they all start with having a good handle on your controls around your data. Mm -hmm. So start there. I don't think we're going to see a federal law passed anytime soon, which is why all the states um, are doing things to go ahead and protect, which makes it very, very, very difficult to stay on top of all the things you have to be compliant to. Mm -hmm. So if you put in the basics and you show intent to try to protect what you have, and you're wise about it, that's going to go a long way with any regulation that comes your direction. Um, but if you just ignore it and say, that's not about me, that's about somebody else, that's when you wake up with a major headache um, that could be devastating. I mean, we really like to talk about ransomware because it's an easy thing to understand, and you could probably make an after-school special about it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really the, if you are that dentist office and you just lost 20 years of records and you built your entire reputation on being the community dental office and you sponsored all the soccer teams in town. And now every one of your customers is getting spearfished and getting their life savings taken. You're gone. Yeah. What, what about the shifting of this whole, I mean, really the whole world to remote work, right. Or hybrid at the very least. What, what does that change in terms of the regulatory landscape, in terms of the way regulators are thinking about data privacy? Any Anything that comes to mind? Yeah, here's the, uh, the regu- I don't think it's changed regulations at all. So I don't think they're out saying now people are working from home, we need to change the regulation. They're still marching forward with pretty strict regulations that make it that much harder for a company to be compliant now that instead of managing three offices, they manage 300. Mm-hmm. Because that's the reality in IT is I now have 300 branch offices I need to manage um, versus the three that I used to have because I have 300 employees working from home. But it has absolutely increased the the threat target from an external standpoint is now I don't have to break into three fairly hardened offices. I just got to find the one weak office out of the 300 and I'm right. into the network. Right, So it's definitely changed the threat landscape and made it significantly easier. And one of the things I hear from companies way too often is I think they're naive believing that employees are working from home and following all best practices around security and they're not saving anything to their hard drives and they don't have external drives and there's not 13 other people on their network. It's like, no, we're a Citrix shop and everything's this. And the reality is, is people are working around it or they're just doing what they need to do to get their job done, which sometimes might not include the five things that uh, IT security wants them to do. 
So regulatory, regulatory, no, but company response, absolutely. And the threat response from people that want to do harm has been massive. So when you think about some of that, I mean, basically what you're saying is the need is bigger, right? The problems are bigger, <laughs> but um, really nothing's shifting in the regulatory landscape to accommodate that. If anything, it's it's affecting just a stronger need and a stronger desire for customers to leverage Spirion or somebody else for data privacy in a more meaningful way. Correct. Correct. And it's so, not just, like I said, it's a matter of tools. There is no magic buy a box of Spirion and everything as well. If anybody tells you that, they're, they're absolutely lying. It's a mix of process. It's a mix of technology. It's a mix of disciplines. Um, but I think it all starts with culture. It all starts with culturally understanding that what I do can cause a lot of harm to people and to companies. So I need to treat that data accordingly. Um, and right now we don't. It's just numbers and zeros and ones and files. That's the biggest thing that's got to shift. No silver bullets, just a lot of lead bullets. Correct. And I, I get very frustrated with my uh, with my peer organizations. I'll be at uh, RSA is a big conference for us here a few weeks out in California. And I'll walk by booth after booth after booth of giant staples, easy buttons and all these things of how simple this whole thing is. And it's just it's just wrong. It confuses the market. Um, this is hard. And it starts with wanting to do something for the right reasons. Then you will not because I'm trying to be compliant, but because it's the right thing to do. Are you finding yourself competing with the likes of, of RSA and, and legacy players like that on a regular basis? Uh, it's usually small little boutique firms like Microsoft. I don't know if you guys have heard of them. Um, they're Very one small. of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we got everybody from Microsoft and Amazon um, have solutions around ours. Um, then you've got some well-funded VC companies, companies like Big ID, Veronis, um, Veronis being publicly traded. Uh, and then you've got uh, with Data Discovery, which is basically um, – I'll make a super simple analogy. So I'm sitting in my home office, pretend this home office was full of a thousand or 10,000, put a hundred thousand manila folders in here. So you can picture them all stacked up and, but there's no labels on. So in order to figure out where's your, uh, where's your Traeger smoker recipes um, and where's last year's tax returns, you got to take that file up, you got to open it up and you got to go through every page that's in there and say, oh, I did, this was this was just the, the smoker thing. But look at that. Here's the receipt from when I actually bought the smoker tucked in between these three things I printed off in the actual manual for it, right? Yeah. That, that's how this goes. But now I have my credit card number and receipts inside that file. How am I going to investigate those 100,000 files and then put a sticky note on to say, within this lies a bunch of stuff I don't care about, but there is the receipt, which includes the credit card number. Oh, and oh, by the way, I had to finance it because it was the super big smoker. So guess what else is in there? My social security number, as well as the loan paperwork and the rest of those pieces. That, that's what we do as a company. And that's really, really hard to do accurately. It might be easy to say, yeah, I can open up the door and say, yep, you got a lot of files in there. I glanced at them. So most of the people that are getting into the space are doing it because they're being required to, to win a bid, but they're not focused on doing it really, really well. They're doing it on focused on trying to go ahead and check the box. So we see a lot of check the box competitors versus people that are really serious about doing the hard work of really being able to tell this truly is a credit card number and not a part number. And by the way, you truly care about it because it's sitting in Kevin's office, which isn't that well secured. I mean, this is an incredibly important topic for people to get smart on, as I think you've mentioned 10 times, right? I mean, social dilemma while buying a hundred dollar popcorn, great starting point. I would also recommend listening into, um, your company's podcast, Privacy Please, as another starting point. 
what else out there um, can people use to get smart quick as a starting point? Yeah. So first of all, um, there's something changing every single day. The privacy, please, guys. Um, one of them was with my company. Another one was with the company a while ago. We do not. That is not a Spirion show. That is thought leaders from regulators, from privacy people, from security practitioners, and there's a bunch of other really good ones that are out there um, for those that do the podcast thing. Um, those that are trying to stay current. Let's let's say you're a CEO or you're you're on a board and you want to say, wow, there's a lot going on. I need I need to make sure that that I I can stay on top of this. There's a host of really good feed type websites you can subscribe to. And we, I can send you some after the call you can post. I get ones daily from, uh, from CISO insights. I get them from uh, there's data breach ones. that will go ahead and talk about the breaches that are impacting others inside the industry and where they mm. came and how they're operating. I do a ton of reading um, and it gets pushed to me often in the morning, but I subscribe out. I also use Maybe this is old school these days, but I use a product called Flipboard, which curates all the stuff based on what I have. And I'll spend probably a couple hours a day going through Flipboard, which is bringing me everything relevant to my industry. Mm -hmm. um, and there's another really cool tool um, that I stumbled across, which is great both from staying current, but also staying competitive called uh, Signals Insights. Not a plug for their company, but basically it's an AI tool that will go scan for um, you can give them up 10 to 12 different things you want to look for. And I get that at eight o'clock every single morning. And that's my, my coffee go through what's going on with my competitors, what's going on with the, the market, what's going on with the regulations that apply to me. Um, so you, you've got to, you can't hope that somebody in your team is doing this. You got to take it on yourself. So it's a great, great tip, great resources that you mentioned, and please do send those over. So um, I like to close out every show the same way, which is going through what I call the founder five, which is five questions, uh, or in your case, the CEO five, mm -hmm. five questions that apply to CEOs and founders about your growth, uh, Spirion's growth, and just in general themes around value and value creation. So my first one for you, um, and I've been itching to ask this to you, is what is the number one metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on? ARR, annual recurring revenue. So changes to ARR, but ARR is what every single person in the company knows when it goes up a dollar, when it goes down a dollar, because that drives net retention. Um, it's driven by net retention, which is driven by customers. I talk about, we don't want happy customers at Spirion. We want successful ones. Um, and sometimes that means you got to break some glass, but if you're focused on happiness, you're focused on the wrong things. So if you're doing customer success right, if you're building good products, all those things will show up in ARR. So that is my number one metric. Preach. <laughs> All right. Second one is a top tip for growth stage CEOs like yourself. Top tip would be pick a pick an operating system for your company and, and run it methodically. Don't, don't just go off and say, well, I kind of did finance and I did this and I did that and have functions doing things. We chose EOS. I think you and I might have talked about that, which is the entrepreneurial operating system, which is based on a book by a guy by the name of Gina Wickman called Traction. Mm -hmm. um, I came from bigger companies. I came from bigger schools and bigger thoughts. And I didn't know how to operationalize that in a hundred person company. Um, by picking a operating system and sticking to it, um, you'll start to see change. It takes time. But now when I say, you know, we've got an L10 meeting, everybody knows what that is. They know exactly how an L10 meeting runs. They know the structure around it. They know the KPIs they have to bring. When I talk about the BTO, with everybody knows that's a two-page document. And the first page tells us where we're going to be 10 years from now. It's got our core values. It's got those three unique competitors I told you about a few minutes ago. It's got a three-year view for what the, it's going to feel like to work with a company three years. And you flip it over, 
here's our OKRs for this year, here's our next 90 day rocks, and here's issues in the way. Everybody knows what that is. So those are the kinds of things that I think too often CEOs will get really interested in for about two quarters. And then life gets in the way and they start moving off of it. And then you got a new hire that you bring in and they got a way they want to do things. And that's not healthy, especially for a small company. So pick an operating system and stick to it. All right. Next one. Uh, favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow as a CEO? Um, the Hard Things About Hard Things. Hmm. Have you read it? Yeah, we were talking about silver and lead bullets just a second ago. That's what I picked oh, yeah. up on. That, that encourages me um, a, a lot, especially being in the space, because when I think the white water can't get any worse, I'm like, oh, yeah, it did right here. Yeah. <laughs> if you're trying to, if you're about to run out of cash and, you did, and, you're, and your big idea is to go public in two weeks, um, and that's what's going to save the day, I haven't ever had a moment like that, right? So there's a lot of moments in there that I think bring reflection, but it's helped me with recognizing that you hired the right person for the right moment, which isn't necessarily a popularity contest. And being the CEO or a founder, it is a lonely spot to be because um, yeah. you're going to have to make decisions that people aren't going to agree with. This is not, let's go get consensus of everyone on the board and everybody on your team. Sometimes you just got to call your shot. So I just I found that a really, really good resource, both from a psychological standpoint for me, but also there's a lot of good tools in there. Um, to go ahead and leverage that, that Andreessen and Horowitz have their website and they reference a lot of stuff in the book. Um, but that's that to me has been great. There's few books that I reference at least monthly, and that's one of them. It's uh, it's incredible how applicable it is on a regular basis, no matter yeah, what. It's a book written for, for CEOs and founders. I mean, it really is right. directly at that audience. In tech as well. Wow. Right. Yeah. Um, awesome. All right. What is uh, what's one? Jeez, uh, how do I put this? Conventional wisdom tip that you uh that you that you counter right like what what's something that you have that you live by that counters traditional wisdom i, I think i mentioned it a minute ago but i'll, I'll go into a little more and that's we, we don't want happy customers i think every company walks around and says we just want our customers to be happy well in my business happy customers can be really expensive and they're the ones that gave you an nps score of 10 for the last three times you surveyed them and then they cancel their contract Right. Um, because they didn't get any value. They got no impact. Um, another example I like to use is you've got to train up an administrator for your tool and the administrator's fallen asleep in the last three classes that you had, but you can't say anything bad about the administrator because that would make the customer unhappy. You're setting them up for a colossal disaster that's going to show up where we're going to be the problem. So I, I tell my prospects day one, um, this is hard. And sometimes I'm going to tell you that you're stupid. And sometimes you're going to tell me that I'm the worst vendor ever. Let's just get that out on the table now because I'm focused on making sure you can protect the digital identities of my friends, my family, and me. That's what my mission is. So if I can help you do that, I don't care if it's with a competitor's product, but let's know that that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And we don't necessarily have to be best friends about this whole thing because my goal is making you successful. Happiness is a chocolate bar. When it's gone, you're going to want another one. Success is something that's going to help your business. So um, that is a mantra for me. We do not want happy customers in Sperio. We want successful Love ones. Love it. All right. Last one. What is going to be the title of your autobiography when you've accomplished all you set out to do? You promised me we weren't going to have one of these questions. We had, we had that out the gate. Um, I lied. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the, what would it be? Uh, it would be catchy and I would get marketing to approve it, but it would be um, say what you're going to do and do it. And that's, that's really, 
say what you're going to do and do it. Nothing frustrates me more when somebody on my team says what they're going to do and they don't do it. Um, or um, sometimes when they do something they said they weren't going to do. So just that, that consistency is so important because that's where trust comes from. Yeah. Um, and, and just trust that I'm going I'm, I'm to accomplish what I'm looking to accomplish and I'm going to do it in the path that I told you I was going to do. So setting that expectation and delivering against it, I, I would say, is what got me this chair. That's what helping us get through the white water as we look at each other and say, yeah, um, we're going to do this. We might not know exactly how we're going to get there, but do what you say you're going to do and then make sure you're waking up every day delivering on it. Nice. Which would be well, a really long tombstone. I'm going to have a giant monument. It's going to be huge. <laughs> no, that's that's terrific. <laughs> like, you know, you've given uh you've given so much to our listeners today, Kevin. So um I always like to allow for a little bit of self-promotion at the end. How can how can those listening help you out? This is gonna sound somewhat Pollyannic, but I, where we started this call is what I, um is what my passion is at the company. If this lit a little bit of an idea in your mind that maybe we don't have a good handle on our data security, um go figure it out. Um just drop me a note on LinkedIn. I got a little book. That 200 things to help with your personal privacy, like don't put your kids' names on their backpacks. <laughs> that, that's that's technologically zero, but can be so critically important. So just bringing the consciousness of how important this is was the number one reason I agreed to join your podcast. So if we accomplish that, um, that's my goal. There's a gazillion resources out there. I, I, the the one that we talked about, the social dilemma, I made my, my 12-year-old son and my wife sit and watch it so they really understood that this is not an accidental thing, but it's a multi-trillion dollar business is trading in their data. Yeah. So that to me is a huge help um, for us specifically, if you're um, organizationally, uh, if, if we can help you with our product, or if I can help you connect you to, we've got a lot of partners that specialize in sitting down and saying, all right, let's take a look at your data. Let's take a look at your growth. Let's understand what regulations you, are, you might be subscribing to. Um, I'm in the greater Tampa area. I got some great CEOs from both smaller and bigger companies alike that focus on risk. And understanding data risk and processes around it. So um, if there's anything I do to help tap into the ecosystem, um, th that would be the most self-serving thing I can do. Help solve this problem because it's not going to be one software product. It's not going to be one giant SI firm. It's not going to be one regulation. It's going to be a combination of all those things. And what's, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, Kevin? LinkedIn by far. So it's just KT Coppins, um, um, Kevin Coppins on LinkedIn. Uh, go ahead and hit me up there. But by far, and uh, to your question before, I, I try to be uh, I try to be focused on the stuff that I share. I just shared something a couple of days ago that I got from a colleague that works for a risk company that was really a great write-up on um, the new CISA stuff coming down from the federal government and what it means to you as an individual and as to a company. So I try to share stuff there that's really relevant that will make an impact. You won't see a lot of company stuff there, but that will help get people plugged in as well. So um, give me a follow or, or go ahead and meet me up there. If you got questions, plug in. I'm, I'm on there pretty regularly. Thanks, man. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. And uh, I'm sure you'll get a couple reach outs from people listening in. So thanks a bunch. Sure. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for letting me preach a little bit. Be safe. You bet. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to the dirt.